this is without a doubt the most popular of the stories of David. And for a very good reason. For one, it's a timeless story of the underdog, which we love. But it's also told by a master storyteller, as we could tell as Leah read it to us. Every detail is given to capture our imaginations, to draw us into the story. Did you notice all the details that are given in regard to Goliath's appearance? It sounds to me like a boxing announcer who knows that the people listening can't see what he sees. Listen again. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Now, we struggle to translate this into our terms, but it's agreed that Goliath is at least six foot eight, which was a giant in those days, but he could be up to nine feet tall. The announcer goes on to tell us of all his armor, his shield and his spear and the size of the spear. And then in the other corner is David. And while the writer tells us a little bit about his appearance, there's much less to tell about David. He's clearly young, he's ruddy, and he's handsome. You know, one of the striking features of this story is that it's a story about a battle, yet the battle itself only lasts a few seconds. Three verses in a chapter of 58 verses. Clearly, there's a lot more going on than just the battle itself, which we'll see, hopefully, in a little while. Now, we do love the underdog aspect of the story. David, a young man, untrained in battle, defeats the battle-trained champion, Goliath. We love to think about our own lives in this way when we face large obstacles. We, we bring it out like a lucky charm when our favorite sports teams are facing tough odds. It's a David and Goliath scenario. And there are certainly things to be learned here about facing intimidating opponents. But the problem is the underdog way of reading David and Goliath doesn't always ring true. So the strongest memory I have of the David and Goliath story is when I was a senior in high school. Our football team, Houghton High School, was not used to winning as many games as we won that year. We, we won 10 games. Our record was 10-0. and 0. And we went further into the playoffs than we usually went. I, I think it was the quarterfinals. But in the quarterfinals, we were set to face a team from New Orleans called John Curtis. John Curtis. Year after year, John Curtis won state championships, and they sent players into Division I colleges who also went on to play in the NFL. The joke was that the football players would get steroid steroids with their school lunch. And I don't know if it was a joke or not, but that was one of the things that was said. They were big. And sadly, they didn't suffer from uh, the slowness that's sometimes associated with being big. They were big and they were fast. So, New Orleans isn't necessarily a valley. It's more like a pit. But for the sake of the story, for the sake of the story, we traveled down like David into the valley of New Orleans. And despite the odds, the spirits were high. And before our team came out of the locker room, uh, it was our pastor, um, he was the chaplain for the football team. He did a devotional on David and Goliath. 
And he even gave each of the football players a stone so that they could remember this story as they went out onto the field and they played the game. What do you think the outcome was of that game? Sadly, Goliath won that day. And he won the way that giants win. Big. 40 to nothing. Now, of course, I'm not saying underdogs can't win. They often do. And I usually like to see it. But David and Goliath, this story is about something even bigger. And it only works some of the time in underdog scenarios, but there is a way of reading this story that works all the time, that is always true. So the crucial question with this story is, how does it work in our lives? How does this story become our own story? Because that's the purpose of it being here in the Bible that we read and we make the authority for our lives as Christians. I'm going to draw out a couple of points for us. The first point is, our enemies are giants, but they're not always the ones you think. Our enemies are giants, but they're not always the ones you think. So Goliath isn't just any enemy. Do do you remember when the Israelites were told by God to go spy out the land of Canaan that he had promised to give them? This is in everyone's favorite book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, that this story is recorded. Twelve men go spy out the land of Canaan. They discover how fruitful and how beautiful it is. But all except two of those men report back to Moses and the Israelites that the people of the land are giants. They tell them there's no way they can overcome them. Now, the Israelites begin to despair at this news. They're immobilized by fear and they complain against their leaders, Moses and Aaron, and say, why shouldn't we have just stayed in Egypt? Why did you bring us out here into the the wilderness to die? Now this is the last straw between God and these people. These people have exhibited a faithlessness since they came out of Egypt. They've complained and they've refused to trust God. So this time... God says all their complaining and their constant fear is going to leave them wandering. This is what fear does. It immobilizes to the point where we have this purposelessness about us. We don't know who we are, what we're supposed to do. And so it leaves them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. A lot of them will die there, all because they're afraid to go anywhere. They won't trust God to overcome the giants in the land. So Goliath is the same type of enemy. He's a giant who strikes fear in the hearts of God's people to the point that they're paralyzed. They're unable to act, unable to see a hopeful future. So listen again to what Leah read to us. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Enemies, Israel's enemies were fear-inducing giants who kept them from what God wanted for them. What we need to see is that our enemies are giants too. And they have a way of thwarting what God wants for us. Now, Goliath also resembles another enemy. 
he blasphemes the God of Israel by claiming power and authority over God's people. He threatens their very existence. And in doing that, he threatens Yahweh, the God of Israel. He curses David by his own gods. Now there's also this other not-so-subtle illusion in our story. We hear that Goliath wears a coat of armor that looks like scales. Some of our Bibles translate it that Goliath's coat was a coat of mail. These are these small interlocking hooks of metal that would protect one against the thrust of a sword. But the literal word in this story for mail is scales. The author is making a word play. He's calling on us to go into our memory of Scripture. What other enemy of God's people has scales? Goliath bears this faint resemblance to the scaly snake that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. Goliath is the epitome, the embodiment of Satan himself, the accuser, the one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. If Goliath wins this battle, in fact, if Goliath just keeps coming out every single day and Israel does nothing, God's people will at best be in slavery. At worst, they're going to be destroyed. Goliath is the embodiment of Satan. But Goliath is only a temporary embodiment of this enemy. You know, we read this story within the larger story of the Bible where the greatest enemies we face are not human, but they are spiritual enemies. Listen to Paul in Ephesians. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he says to the Christians in Ephesus, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, if there was anyone who had reason to think they were tied up in a battle against human giants, it was the people Paul was writing to when he said that. They were being pressured and persecuted by their family members, their former friends, and the government authorities because of their faith in Jesus as the real king of the cosmos. From all appearances, it looked as if their enemies were human beings. But Paul is directing their attention to this larger battle that is going on, to a more fierce enemy who is directing all the conflict from behind the scenes. Christians, here is what we are called to believe. The enemies we face, the giants in our lives, are not human, no matter how much it appears to be so. Our enemy is not primarily ever a spouse, a boss, a child, or a government leader. Is not. Our enemies are spiritual. They're forces of darkness that are present and active in our world, and they're bent on bringing death and destruction. Now, I'm going to identify three of these giants that we are called to fight. Here they are sin, the flesh, and the devil. First sin, 
then the flesh, and then the devil. You see, sin is this behavior. It's a way of being in the world that brings death. This is the way it's put in the letter of Romans. The wages of sin is death. Now, the Scriptures aren't pointing only to some physical death. They're talking about the way that sin perverts truth, goodness, and beauty. And in doing that, sin brings death into the midst of our current lives. So in the midst of our current ongoing lives, we experience a kind of death, a shadow over our lives, a cloud. So what are we to do? We're to put sin to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. We have one of two options when it comes to sin. And a Puritan put it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now the second giant we fight is the flesh. (laughs) That's fun. At least it's not the gnashing of teeth and things that was going on before the sermon started, right? The second giant we fight is the flesh. Now, when the Scriptures talk about the flesh, they're not talking about our bodies in general. This is very important for us to realize. They're not just talking about our bodies as if our bodies themselves are bad. That's dualism. That's not Christianity. No, we're made in the image of God, even in our bodies. The Scriptures speak of this force that's present in all of us that craves sin, that wants the things that are selfish and evil. This force within us, the flesh as it's called, it bends us towards things which assure us of life and happiness, but in all reality are laced with poison. Once we get them, they'll begin to work this death in us. So here we're warned, and this is coming from the book of Romans, if you live by the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Our flesh is this force in us that leads us away from life, the life that God intends, kind of the promised land of the Israelites. But God's Spirit empowers us for life. Now the third giant we fight is this Goliath-like giant, Satan. He's the architect of chaos and evil. And he uses our flesh and sin to lure us and to trap us. To trick us. Listen to Peter warning us about our, this enemy. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. To destroy. I want to ask you, before we go anywhere else, do you believe this? Do you? That your greatest enemy and the giants you fight aren't flesh and blood. This is so difficult to believe in our world. But it actually could make us more sane. Not crazy and not superstitious. The giants we fight are forces that are inside us and around us that are bent on creating chaos. Do you believe it? 
This could actually make us more capable of loving others and feeling compassion toward others. It can make us more human to believe this. Now, the first way to make the David and Goliath story our own is to make sure we know who our enemies are. The giants we face, they're sin, they're the flesh and the devil. And these faceless enemies are powerful forces. They're eating away at the world all around us. They, they prey on individual lives, they prey on marriages, and they prey on families. And the accumulated power of sin has the power to destroy churches like ours, communities, and entire nations. Now, some of you are feeling the power of sin, the flesh, and the devil right now. Whether it's directly in your life where you're being tempted, you're being lured away from God, or you are suffering from something of the collateral damage of other people choosing evil and sin. What are we to do? How do we fight these forces of evil? Now, this is the second way we make this story our own. The first way is we need to know who our enemies are. The second way, it's one of those simple but profound realities. We need to remember the God who helps us defeat our enemies. We need to remember the God who helps us defeat our enemies. So the reality of God changes everything. We need to see this in this story. Back to, back to our story. Before David arrives on the scene, the name of God has never been mentioned. Can you believe this? It's halfway into our story before the name of God ever comes up. The Israelites can only see one reality. They're frozen in fear. And so they have this towering enemy against whom they don't stand a chance and a future where they are doomed to defeat. David's belief in God opens up an alternate reality. Simply by speaking the name of God, other possibilities come into focus all of a sudden. Do you remember that Saul is supposed to be a giant in Israel? Do you remember this? When we heard about Saul the first time, he's a head taller than anyone else in Israel. What other man would make a better king than this? He's a Goliath-like man in Israel. But even he's afraid to fight Goliath. He doesn't want to send this small boy into the battle, but he has no other choice. David, for all we know, was this average-sized kid by comparison. And he tells Saul, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David is speaking here of salvation. This is no normal battle between two people. It's a battle between God and the forces of evil embodied in Goliath. And in this battle, David anticipates God's salvation. His last statement before the battle is this. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Why is it that the actual battle between David and Goliath only takes up three verses of this much larger story? Because the battle is much less important than something else. Here's what's important. God. 
that God is believed in and that in the overall analysis of our lives, God is accounted for. You see, without God, the Israelites are rightly afraid. They don't have a Goliath. Their prospects are not bright. But with God, the situation is entirely different. The possibilities are endless. They might not know the future, but they're guaranteed something. There will be a future. They're afraid that if they go down to fight Goliath, all is lost. But if they'd only trust God. And so it is with our lives. Whatever giants you're fighting, you don't have to fear that everything's going to be lost. You can really trust God that all will not be lost. There will be a future. The reason that some of us surrender to our enemies, to sin, our flesh, and the evil one, the reason that we start looking at each other as enemies instead of fighting the real enemy, the reason we stop praying and hoping is because we've lost our sense of the reality of God. We resign ourselves, even if it's only momentarily, to a world where God doesn't exist. He can't help us. And whatever future there is will be because we make it. It's dependent on us. But this is not the case. Reality is much brighter. Now, you know, we all like to identify with David in this story. We want to be the underdog. The hero. But the truth is, we're not David. That, that's not who we're supposed to identify with in the story. We're actually the Israelites. Some of us have faced giants in our lives. Fears, failures, sure. But a lot of us have giants that we've, we've refused to face. We have ongoing fears We have deep-seated insecurities, deep-rooted anxieties, deep sin that we look on from afar the way the Israelites looked on at Goliath from the top of that mountain. And when we look at them, we refuse to face them because we cannot imagine a future on the other side of that shame, on the other side of that regret, on the other side of that failure or whatever it may be. Here's what God has done for us. Jesus arrived on the scene like David. And he scoped out the Goliath-like enemies of sin, the flesh, and Satan who have crippled us. Who diminish our lives. Who take our lives. And then, just like David surprised Goliath by wearing no armor and felling him with a slingshot to the head, Jesus dealt a death blow to Satan by dying under sin, by bearing it. And even though it might have appeared to crush Jesus, in the end, he crushed it. And Jesus arose as our champion. He is the true David, and the one who is much greater than Goliath. And he opens up this way on a new future, a new reality, where giants are forever defeated. So this is not just an underdog story. It's about Jesus having conquered giants, and you, and following Jesus, 
there are no giants. They've already been overcome. So David staked his life on the power of Yahweh to save him. So the question as we close off this story is this. Have you staked your life on the power of the risen Jesus to save you and to deliver you? Whatever situation you're in, real life battle. Are you staking your life on the power of the living Christ to deliver you from sin, from your flesh, and from the devil? And are you trusting Him that there will always be a future when you follow Him? We must know who our real enemies are. And we must know that God will help us overcome them. He has, and He always will. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.